0: Well, we have been working our way through, uh, since last year, uh, studying the Gospel of Luke. And so, if you got a bulletin on the way in, there is a sermon outline in that. I would invite you to pull that out. It may help you a little bit uh, following along with, with where we are. And today will be in Luke chapter 15. I, uh, I enjoy playing around with new technology. Um, and a year and a half ago I got a video doorbell for the front of our house to convince myself that, you know, it helps provide some security since neither of us are home all day when stuff is delivered, but it's also a toy, you know, that I get to play with and my wife would attest to that's probably the main reason why we got it. But in any case, most of the time it only catches cars driving by. And so when you're dropping your kids off at the elementary school, know that you're setting off my front doorbell there. Uh, (laughs) uh, It uh, catches the mail lady bringing packages up. But the Monday after Christmas... I wasn't here, we got all that snow, remember, and I was down in Indianapolis and my phone popped on and I I noticed that on the event summary, this picture was taken at four o'clock in the morning. if you look really close, you can see the snowbank, but you also see, you know, that mangy deer out in the middle of our driveway. And it verified for me, it's the first time that I've actually caught deer on my uh, front doorbell camera there. It verifies the presence of the band of hoodlums that destroy my plants all summer long. <laughs> I have um, proof, you know, the guy standing out there in the, in the driveway. And so I saw that picture, and then when I clicked on the, uh, the video... I found out there was more going on than just that one deer. Let me see if this works. That's the front door. I think there's... Yeah, he's still there. Yeah. He, he may have been ringing the doorbell. I'm not... Not exactly sure he was close enough for it, Um, but you know Just when you think that that all that set off the motion detector was this deer way out in the driveway because things do set it off Out there you realize no, there's another deer right at the front door In fact knocking over the the small Christmas trees that are there assuming that that was lunch. You know here's this green thing Um, Right up at the front door uh, Trying to eat on those things kind of ridiculous, but I thought like everything that I run into, that provides a really good sermon illustration, and I've got to find somebody to use that. Um, but what I thought of about that, and how that connects to what we're going to look at this morning, there is often more to a story than what first glance provides, right? You know, there's more to the more to the video than just that deer way out in the driveway. There's more happening uh, than what at first glance you realize. And I think that may be more true of the uh, parable that we are looking at this morning that Jesus shared than any of the other stories that he told. Now, last Sunday we started in Luke 15. And if you have a Bible or the Bible app on your phone, I would invite you to turn there with me again. And this week we're going to sort of finish what I started last week and, and teased out a little bit. By looking at the parable of the prodigal son, the, the parable, parable of the prodigal son is easily Jesus' most famous story. Uh, I mentioned last week there are at least 30 different songs from classical, Christian, even secular music that either use the title or the theme of the prodigal son uh, as a, their premise. And, and you can think even in the language that we use, that we use common expressions that find the roots here. You know, he or she is a prodigal or uh, that place is a pigsty. How many of you use that of your kid's bedroom? Uh, the, the phrase, he came to his senses, or let's kill the fattened calf. All those are rooted right here. Jesus started those phrases and they become popular in the language in which we speak. Uh, most people, whether they have spent time in church much or not, been around the Bible uh, much or not, uh, they know the basics of the prodigal son story. His younger son of a rich father uh, takes his inheritance and then he squanders it all. And yet there's a lot more to it than that. Uh, there is much more to the parable than just that basic storyline. In fact, the prodigal son's story is a lot like the deer in the driveway. Uh, in this way, that at first glance it seems like that's the main character, and really it's not. Really, this story is directed towards someone much closer to the camera. And to find out what that is, who that is, uh, we, need to, we need to read a few verses. So let's get started. Luke 15, verse 11 begins this way. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. Last Sunday, I introduced this chapter under the title, Lost and Found, Part 1. And I realized this week that forever into the future, people are going to wonder what happened to Part 2 because I decided halfway through the week that we weren't going to call this Lost and Found Part 2 because it is a story more about two sons and their father. Jesus was this master storyteller. The parables were these stories that he made up on the spot, yeah, he could do that. And in this particular case, he likely made up the story because of the two groups that sat in front of him. And to understand that, we have to back up a little bit. We have to look at some of what we looked at last week. And so, I want to go back to the beginning. I want you to remember this. If you're filling in blanks, here's the first part. Remember the audience of this very well-known, famous parable. The audience was the obviously unrighteous and the arrogantly self-righteous. Now, let's see what that, how that that uh, plays out. Um, First two verses, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now I won't rehash all that we delved into last Sunday about those two groups, but their presence provides a critical background and is important to understand our text. The two groups of the tax collectors and sinners on one side and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law on the other side, those two groups are the target audience, are what these parables through this story are all about and match the descriptions on my slide there. Uh, The tax collectors were the obviously righteous. Everybody, including the tax collectors, uh, would realize that label attaches to them. Uh, They they knew and would not deny the appropriateness of that. Everybody hated the tax collectors uh, and they knew that hatred came with just cause. Uh, They had brought much of their identity as obviously unrighteous individuals on themselves through their own personal choices. Um, And yet, like I talked about last week, it's rather interesting, fascinating to me that they were somehow drawn to Jesus anyway. That it was these people so much unlike Jesus that were attracted to Jesus. But it was their presence there. It was the fact that Jesus was talking to them. And in fact, even eating with them. That set off the other group. And sort of revealed their, uh, their true colors. Because on the other side of the equation were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And they were the religious elite. They were the individuals that everybody assumed had it all together. Uh, that were right with God. They performed all the right rituals. They were the in crowd, if you will, spiritually. Everybody looked up to the Pharisees and to the teachers <laughs> of the law. Uh, and they kept the rules. And they assumed that the label sinner didn't apply didn't fit uh, their lives. And yet, in reality, uh, they were arrogantly self righteous and uh, were as far from God as anyone else. It's just they didn't see it and they wouldn't admit it. <coughs> the fact that Jesus would spend time with these spiritual lowlifes over here were, were in, their, in their minds, another check mark against his qualifications as being the Messiah, called his credibility into question. And it's the really interesting twist because so many people know the parable of the prodigal son. and As much as we commonly assume that parable is about and intended for, those that can relate to that, can relate to uh, drifting from God, uh, intended for that first group, uh, Jesus was speaking more to the Pharisees than he was to anybody else. Um, Last Sunday, we looked at the two parables that led into this, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And I suggested that those two parables are also targeted at those two audiences, that the parable of the lost sheep uh, was describing the tax collectors and sinners. The shepherd just fervently pursued that one lost sheep. And when he found it... uh, There was a party. They rejoiced. And Jesus makes the connection at the end of that first story. It's just like this when one sinner repents. Celebration in heaven. Um, And then the second story of that lost coin, I think can be associated with the Pharisees and teachers. They were obviously valuable. And um, they uh, were just as valuable to God, but, but failed to really get that they were lost. Didn't understand that and that they needed to be found. Those two stories connected those two groups and they set the stage for this last parable uh, to apply to both of those groups as well. And the first one, obviously, this story for the tax collectors and sinners. Now we read verse 11 to 13. Let's go back and read it one more time. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, sent off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. So the basic crux of the prodigal's tale, it's, it's told right there. You know, we, When you think about the prodigal son, you, you think about what we just read there. There was this man with two sons. And in that culture, uh, inheritance would be divided uh, in such a way that the oldest always received twice what any of the other sons did. All right, so when you have two sons, the oldest son was entitled to two thirds of the inheritance, and the younger son uh, would receive one third. A father could hand over possession of the family property while he was still alive if he chose to, uh, but For a son to do what this young son did was shockingly disrespectful. Uh, he demanded his share right then, converts it all into cash, and then heads off to a far country to just waste it, to just blow it all. Uh, most of us have heard this parable and know about it. You know, I've heard it so many times. that It really doesn't strike us with the stunning impact, I think, that it, it hit that first audience. So Jesus was making this story up. This was the first time I was told. Um, The crowd listening to Jesus teach, they were just shocked by the portrayal of a son. I can't imagine a son that would do that to his dad. Um, How unimaginably offensive it was for this prodigal younger son to do that to his father. In essence, he was saying, you know, I want my money now. I don't care if you're alive or dead. In fact, you know, it would be nice if you were so that I could get what I want. And go and blow it uh, as I want. And maybe, maybe just as shocking is that the father went along with it. The, The father cooperated with those demands. He didn't reprimand his son. He didn't discipline it or disown his son. He just went along with what his son demanded. Verse 14. After he had spent everything... There was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything." That's not really a surprising twist, just like everybody that was sitting there assumed you know, would happen. Um, the fun money only lasted so long, and then to make matters worse, this famine sweeps in, and this younger brother is desperate. Uh, the NIV is somewhat polite in the way that it translates uh, that uh, he hired himself out. The actual Greek word, it conveys more the idea of he glued himself. And and the idea is, it sort of suggests this young man just got so hungry, uh, he's begging for food. And when this pig farmer comes by, he just latched on. You've got to give me something. You've got to you got to help me somehow. And he wouldn't let go. And probably just to get the kid off his back, he said, All right, go out and feed the pigs then, you know. Um, may not have even had any intention of paying him. But to the crowd that was listening to the story, and I think even the tax collectors listened to the story, they were just appalled at how low this prodigal son had, had stooped, had, had uh, gone to. Um, this kid had reached a level where uh, no one there could even imagine doing that kind of thing. Pigs were unclean. No offense there, Greg, but uh, in, in Jewish culture, pigs were unclean, uh, certainly to eat. And uh, no one kept them. No one w- wanted to be around them. And here's the story told. This kid was tempted to eat what the pigs were eating. Can't imagine being that low. And Jesus casts this image. You know, He's telling the story of a person that is so desperate and so despised by everybody who's listening to this. So down. And yet... One that deserved so much of what he got himself into, right? Um, he'd done a horrible thing to his father, persisted forward in it, and now he's paying the price. And you've got to imagine, these two groups there, the Pharisees and tax collectors listen to the story th- with a little bit of smile on their face. right? Yeah, he got what he had coming. He deserves that. He deserves to be in such dire straits. Uh, He brought that on himself. Uh, The Pharisees, you know, they kind of smiled at that, but at the other side of the the group, there sat the tax collectors and they weren't smiling. They saw too much of a reflection of themselves in that story. They they knew that just like this kid... um, Uh, They had many, many times before brought trouble on themselves. They'd experienced rejection from people that they were around, even family members. They experienced hatred and distance between themselves and people. And it was all because of sinful choices, all because of their own decisions along the way. They saw the reflection of themselves in that prodigal son. They were fully aware. Jesus was describing them with his graphic tale. And if the story had stopped there, that would, that would, you know, have made that connection point. But it doesn't. And it takes this dramatic turn with the very next phrase, verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up, and he went to his father. Uh, Of the whole story, I love that one phrase in there, when he came to his senses. Uh, As hungry as he was, as lonely as he felt, as desperate as he seemed, he finally stopped and looked with a sober glance at his situation and, and around him, his condition, and he realized, you know, this only changes if I do something different. And the first one that came to his mind was his dad. The man he had rebelled against, the man that he had disrespected, the man that he had plundered in a way. The first person that came to his mind was his dad. How often is that true with us and God? It's been interesting to me uh, over the past couple weeks. Some of you that watch NFL football you know know that uh, my team played on Monday night a couple weeks ago and, and didn't get to finish the game because there was a, just a horrific thing took place in the middle of that as one player had a heart attack basically on the field, and they stopped the, they stopped the whole game and whatnot. But it's been, you know, as hard as that is, and it's a good that he's come through that, fine. But it's just impressive to me how that whole game stopped and everybody started praying. Even on sports channels, uh, people started praying. And isn't it striking that uh, when uh, when people doesn't matter whether they claim to know God or not, when people get to the lowest spot, suddenly they realize, I need to turn to God. only God can fix this. They think of God and they turn to him in prayer. Here in this story, uh, this young man. Uh, thinks of his dad. Hey, dad's got servants that are living better than I am. Uh, hired hands who earn a respectable living. I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to confess my sin. I'm going to ask to be hired on at just the lowest on the rung of the totem pole. In my dad's household. Because it's better than this. And if you think of what Jesus has been talking about and where he comes to in this story, in one word, what that younger brother decided to do at that moment is repent. Turn from his mess that he'd created and turn towards the only one that he knew that could save him. In in the wrap-up of both of the two previous stories that Jesus told about the lost sheep and the lost coin, he used that word, Repent. That whenever a sinner uh, repents, whenever a sinner recognizes their condition, their sin problem, and turns to God for the answer, there's celebration in heaven. Every single time when a sinner repents and turns toward God, rejoicing happens. And rejoicing is actually what you read next. Because the verse continues, verse 20, it stopped with... um, He got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. You notice that uh, this father saw his son while he was still a long ways off. And that likely means he was watching. He'd probably been watching every single day uh, since he left. Um, Day after day after day. And when he realized that that was his son that he saw way off in the distance, could recognize the gait of his walk or whatever, Um, uh, when he realized it was his son, the compassion just welled up inside and he ran to meet him with arms open wide. The son who had been lost... Was found. And, and and while the prodigal, see, he, he starts to get his speech, you know, going and rolling when he sees dad. That he was only partly successful at that. He did express his repentance. I mean, you, you read his words. Um, he said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He expressed repentance. He owned his sin. He acknowledged uh, his choices uh, had uh, brought uh, the consequences into his life. Uh, he did acknowledge his unworthiness to be welcomed back. But he didn't get to the part about working his way back in. And that was because his dad was not going to have any of that. Uh, he, he cracked out the family resources to adorn his son, celebrate his return. Because like he says there, the son who was dead is alive again. The son who was lost is found. And the only right response was to celebrate. It's a beautiful story, story that is intended to communicate to the tax collectors and sinners that, yeah, you can connect with that guy. You can understand what you know, he did to himself and what he was going through. Uh, you can see yourselves in his story, and you need to understand that, that God is ready to welcome you with open arms if you'll just turn from your sin and turn toward him. That was intended for them. Uh, welcome them into his family if they, too, would just repent. Now, I mentioned this last Sunday, but uh, really all of the the stories in this chapter, I think, highlight the two aspects of salvation. And By that, I simply mean this, that that on one side, God has done everything that's needed for salvation to be possible. There's nothing that you need to do that I need to do in order to, to be saved, to accomplish salvation. God has done everything necessary for our salvation to be possible. None of us deserve it. None of us are good enough for it. We're all sinners with the same spiritual status stench of uh, that pig pen. We we really are. Whether we want to admit it or not. Um, God had to fix it. God loves us. We sang about that so much this morning. He loves us despite us. He loves us anyway. And He loved this world so much that He gave His one and only Son to enter the human race, live a perfect life, die on a cross in our place For us. For us. Um, Jesus accomplished everything that needed to be done for your sin, for my sin, to be forgiven and to be welcomed into the family of that. Everything has been done by him already. That's the most important aspect of salvation. But there is this other side. For the results that Jesus obtained, for the results that Jesus accomplished to be applied to your life, to your eternity, you have to Make a choice to repent, uh, to own your sin, to turn from it, and to turn toward Jesus. And that's not natural. And a lot of people, a lot of people don't want to make that step. We don't want to own our sin. We don't want to see that we need a Savior. But we do. Every one of us do. We have to see our sin for what it is. Turn from it. Turn from any illusions we might have of being good enough and saving ourselves and having a clean enough slate on our own and turn to Jesus in total dependence and faith. And when we do that, when we respond that way, God welcomes us with open arms. Now, for most people, you know, if you just go interview people on Main Street, most people that have heard the prodigal story, they would tell it maybe even to that point. You know, they know the basics of the prodigal story, and for most people, that's where it ends, and that's the end of uh, the prodigal son story. But the story isn't over. In fact, maybe the main part isn't over. It says in verse 25, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants, and he asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf. Because he has him back safe and sound. These last set of verses are a conclusion for that other group the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. It's kind of easy to forget there were two sons at the start of the story. There's the older son, uh, the firstborn who was in line to receive two-thirds of the state, and the younger son, the one that we've looked at, the one who squandered it all. But the oldest, he was out in the field, and when he comes in for the night, he hears this, his kid brother was home, you know, and dad's throwing this huge party, and he was not happy about that. Verse 31, is, dad, my son, the father said, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. That's not hard, is it? It's not hard to be sympathetic with the older brother's perspective. Uh, the emotions of the older brother. Um, you know, his, his kid brother had clearly sinned against their father. He'd plundered the estate. Uh, he uh, um, had done some things that might have even affected him personally. Might have even affected the older brother somewhat. He'd been working while his brother had been off jet setting in far off places. It's not hard at all to be sympathetic with the older brother in the story. But I want you to remember, and just think about it from this perspective, Jesus was really crafting this story for that group of people, maybe even more than the other. He was aiming at the Pharisees and the teachers of law, who very quickly identified everybody else's sins, this is the stuff you're doing wrong, but did not at all notice in the mirror their own sin. Uh, They could spot a tax collector and a sinner a mile away, but refused to see anything wrong. And their own spirit, in their own heart, their own responses. <laughs> and, and it doesn't take much to look at this older brother and realize he's, he's carrying around quite a bit of sin in his own bag there. Uh, he assumed the worst about his brother. And Nothing stated uh, earlier in the story about prostitutes, but he went there. Uh, he was angry and with such an intense anger, uh, he spoke to his father with just as much disrespect as his kid brother showed at the start. And he revealed... That he'd been doing all that he'd been doing with some pretty flawed, ugly motives. You know? He just listened to his words. He viewed his life as this drudgery. He wasn't working for dad because he loved his dad or anything like that. Um, He was slaving away, slaving away for the old guy, never getting anything for it. Um, Obeying every single order, deserving every bit of the inheritance that one day I'm going to finally get a hold of. Same kind of attitude, same kind of ugliness. Coming from the elder brother. You know, he didn't see any of it. He was physically present, but emotionally, spiritually, he was as far away from his father as his kid brother, the prodigal, was. Um, but notice the father's response, and I think that is just so valuable to think about. The father specifically went after that son, too, uh, he chased him down outside, too. He reasoned with him, he offered the same welcome, he was given the younger brother. But the story closes there, with verse 32, closes without any kind of resolution. We don't know what the older brother did. We don't know, you know, what he decided. We don't know if he repented of his lousy attitudes and choices and joined the party. We don't know. I think that might be on purpose. Uh, we started this uh, morning service with a couple verses from that old hymn that was easy to find. Uh, joyful, joyful, we adore thee because those verses talk about joy, and that's an integral part of this uh, parable. But also because the music for that hymn, and if you look at it, you open the page, look to the bottom and the fine print there, the music uh, for that hymn is based on Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, uh, Ludwig von Beethoven. Uh, was, lived from uh, 1770 to 1827. And he finished his ninth symphony just a few years before he died. It is not only his final symphony, it's also considered his greatest symphony. And at different points, it has had a, a, quite an interesting history. Uh, at Several points it has served as the national anthem for different countries for brief periods of time. Um, it was the first symphony to include a choir, and was rather controversial because of that at the very ending, the climactic part of it uh, employs the words of the poem Ode to Joy and those words are sung by a choir and you've all heard the, the music and you heard it earlier in the service you sang the, the music, the tune but the thing that a lot of people don't realize is that Beethoven never heard a note of that he never heard a single note of the Ninth symphony Um, And that is because he was completely deaf by the time he finished writing it. And to me, that is very fascinating. This symphony that's considered one of the greatest symphonies ever written, and certainly the greatest that Beethoven penned, He never experienced the moving nature of all of that hard work and all that time that he invested. He missed out on the message, if you will, of his own music. Not to do anything that he chose, but he missed out on the message of his own music, this experience, this masterpiece about joy. And it just strikes me the the older brother never experienced joy either. In fact, he's the only person in three parables that Jesus told here. The only person in this whole context that never experienced joy either. And the reason is he refused to, he refused to accept that his brother could be forgiven. He refused to accept that his father could show grace to that son of his. Um, he refused to believe a person could change and he never saw in himself the need to repent as well. Jesus knew his audience. He knew who he was talking to. He knew what was going on in their lives. He knew that the Pharisees and their cohorts walked in the shadow of that elder brother. And so do a lot of people. Sometimes we do too. Sometimes we do too. Walked in the shadow of the older brother. It's so easy to to sort of become complacent, maybe a little bit self-righteous, when we see other people. And their failures, and we need to look hard at that. Uh, Tim Keller wrote an entire book on the parable of the prodigal son. I think it's called the Prodigal God. In one section, he wrote an observation that I, I found just so so intriguing. Um, uh, a lot of people operate this way, and like I said, maybe we're tempted this way to operate this way once in a while too. He wrote this: "You can avoid Jesus as Savior by keeping all the moral laws." And if you do that, you know, if you do everything right, you keep all the laws, you're a good person, you know, you go to church, you do all the right things, Um, you can even avoid, you can actually avoid Jesus as Savior by keeping all the moral laws. Um, If you do that, then you have rights. God owes you answered prayer. God owes you a good life and a ticket to heaven when you die. But notice the last part there. You don't need a Savior who pardons you by free grace. In those situations, you're actually trying to be your own. You think you are your own savior. He went on to say this, If like the elder brother you believe God ought to bless you and help you because you've worked so hard to obey him, be a good person, Jesus may be your helper, your example, even your inspiration. But he's not operating as your savior. You're serving as your own savior. And that is exactly where the Pharisees found themselves. They refused to see their need. They refused to see that they were in any way lost or any way disconnected from God, anyway any way in the wrong at all. They refused to see that. They refused to acknowledge they were as lost as the tax collectors and sinners that they sneered at and looked down on. They assumed they were good enough when in reality they were desperately lost. So there's ways this applies to us. And kind of trickles down to us. I want to give you three lessons that linger for you and me. Here's the first one. Both brothers were alienated from their father, both of them. Uh, sinful rebellion surfaces in both the obviously unholy vices of the uh, go in your own way, do your own thing, whatever you want. of uh, The prodigal. But it also surfaces in that subtle self-righteousness of the they play in by the rules crowd. Both paths can lead to the same place. Eternally dangerous alienation from God. For those that think, you know what? I don't care about sin. I don't really care what God wants or says or even if there is a God. Um, those of us that are Christians, we look at that and we can identify that's a bad road to be heading down. That goes to eternal separation from God. We recognize that we care about people that uh, have chosen that mentality and that direction in their life. We want to reach out to them uh, and share the gospel with them. But so easily we, we look past or uh, we are not as concerned about those that are good people, right? Keep all the rules the right way. Maybe they go to a church once in a while, uh, show up, you know, on the, the two major holidays in the year and things like that. Um, they're good people. They do it right. They keep the rules. They don't lie. They don't cheat they don't on their taxes, whatever. It's really easy to, to just sort of assume, hey, I'm good enough. But you're not. Um, both groups very easily end up in the same place. eternally dangerous alienation from God. A lot of you read the Daily Bread. Um, They often provide some interesting illustrations for pastors. Uh, David Roper wrote a piece in Daily Bread a while ago. He told of a friend of his whose name was Edith. And Edith uh, didn't care much for religion, and yet, uh, one Sunday, uh, found herself uh, looking for something to satisfy the inner discontent in her life, walked into a church near her apartment, uh, and the text that day was from Luke 15. Uh, the first couple verses. The pastor read the verses from the King James Version. And that's important in my story here. So here's how uh, what was read. Then it drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. That's what was read. She wasn't reading it. She heard it. And uh, that's what she heard. Um, and to her ears the verse went this way then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners to hear him and the Pharisees and scribes murmured saying this man receiveth sinners and Edith with them and, and David told the story that Edith heard the pastor read that she sat straight up in the pew you know <laughs> and pastor calling me out um, and eventually she did figure out her mistake but the thought that Jesus welcomed sinners and that includes Edith Uh, It really struck her. And, you know, she was his friend and talked about how that was sort of the beginning of her own drawing near to Christ and spiritual change in her life. And I I love that story uh, just because it, it reminds me the gospel really is that personal. It really is. We all begin life disconnected from God. Some people know it. Some people refuse to admit it. But Jesus wants you to draw near, and he wants to draw you near so that 's the first thing: um, both brothers and very easily, a lot of people that you know fall in one of those two places and need Jesus Christ in their life for salvation. Second thing is this: the only hero in the story the only hero in the story is the recklessly loving, gracious father. He did everything that no one would expect. He loved two sons who rebelled in divergent ways. He chased them both down with the offer of forgiveness. And it's pretty clear Jesus intended that to correlate with God's desire for us. God is the same way with you. Uh, whether uh, you've lived a really good life but um, haven't really identified the fact that you need to be forgiven for your sin, you needed Jesus to die for you, or whether you've lived the kind of life that you would say, yeah, everybody, well, you know, church would fall down if I came to church. Um, God has chased both of those groups and he is the same towards you, he is the same towards me. And, and we each need to think about whether we've responded to that, whether we've received the gift that Jesus came to, to offer. It's such an amazing picture. And I'm very thankful that my Heavenly Father uh, chased me in His love, and reached me. He's just a young boy. Um, I realize this last one, though, maybe filters out towards all of us. Uh, Repentance leads to heavenly rejoicing. It's only when we own our sin, no matter its color, and turn from it, turn towards God's salvation through his son that that will be found and initiate this party in heaven. Uh, Repentance is such a big word in this chapter. And yes, it, it is the, the the groundwork, the basis for salvation, and, and here's the danger. We think about that, okay. Yeah, that sinner needed to repent, those Pharisees need to repent, they need to respond to Jesus and be saved. I did that. I did that so long ago. Repentance is not a word that is just attached to salvation, it is attached to the way we live life every single day. I constantly need to remind myself of the gospel. You know why? because I still sin all the time. And i got to keep going back to the fact that my father loves me, chased me down, in fact, loved me so much that Jesus would die for me. And I need to confess that. I need to get right with him. I need to own my sin over and over and over again and turn to him. In this story, um, only the prodigal repented. The older brother, he's still standing on the porch when Jesus sat down and stopped telling the story. He's still standing outside, the older brother. And I said before, you know, that was likely intentional. Jesus wanted that to just sort of sit there. Wanted the Pharisees to consider, well, what happened? You know, what did he do? How did he respond? Did he respond? Um, But Jesus left the story unfinished because he wanted them to think about how they would end the story. And he wants you and me to think about how we end the story too. Which is what I wrote at the very end there. How would your life close the story Those ways that we might like it to end in this parable. Uh, In John MacArthur's commentary, he conjectured uh, a possible happily ever after ending. This is what he wrote. He said, Then the elder son fell on his knees before his father, saying, I repent for my bitter, loveless heart, for my hypocritical service, for my pride and self-righteousness. Forgive me, father. Make me a true son. Take me inside to the feast. Then the father embraced his firstborn, smothered him with tearful, grateful kisses, took him inside, seated him alongside his brother in dual seats of honor. And they all rejoiced together and the level of joy at that amazing celebration suddenly doubled. No one there would ever forget that night. it be nice if it ended that way, right? it be nice if the story closed like that. But Jesus didn't end it that way. He just left it unfinished. And that's because it was up to the tax collectors, it was up to the Pharisees to decide how to finish the story for themselves. Some would finish well, you know, tax collectors like Zacchaeus, we'll we'll read about later, turn from their life of sin and turn toward Jesus. Pharisees like Nicodemus would turn from their self-righteous arrogance and turn to Jesus for salvation. Um, But many others wouldn't. In fact, a lot of this crowd, they were the ones instrumental in arranging for Jesus' death. But the reason he left it unfinished is because every person has to decide. You have to decide. We each have to decide. How will your life close the story? Now I've got two connection points here. Uh, we all begin life alienated from God because of our sin. We all travel down the road of the obviously uh, sinful direction, whether we own it or not. Uh, some you know, stay within the guardrails. But what happens inside of all of our hearts, we are apart, separated from God. And yet God loves us. God pursued us. Jesus died for us. And the only hope for eternity is to respond to that. Put your faith in Him. And if this morning you are not sure you have ever done that, I hope that you really think that through. I'd love to talk to you about it. But I hope that you'll think that through and put your faith in Jesus Christ because that is the only path forward to forgiveness, to eternity, and to the family of God. But the um, the other branch, if you will, connection point for this is for those of us that know that we've done that, is it possible that we get kind of complacent at times. Kind of complacent with uh, maybe sin in our own lives that we know obviously shouldn't be there or maybe the elder brother syndrome perspective. Uh, Looking down on those who aren't where you think they should be with God. If so, this parable is as much for you as anybody else. Repentance in both situations is the only path forward. Be sure you've accepted God's offer of salvation, but be sure as well you never forget that it was and still is a gift that you do not deserve. I ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes. We're going to just close in a word of, of prayer. And uh, I want you to really think about that parable. Think about those two groups of People. Everybody's at a different place spiritually in their lives. Um, Maybe somebody here this morning would honestly say that they don't think they've ever done anything with who Jesus is. They've never admitted their sin and turned to Him. And if, if that's you, I hope that in the next couple minutes you'll just talk to God about that. Because He is like that father running with open arms. He wants to. He wants to welcome you into His family. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or, or what's in your past. God loves you. And Jesus died for you. And He wants you to trust Him. But it also, I think, is very possible that you can be a child of God and sort of be operating in your life with the mentality of the elder brother. And that's a problem. It's something that needs repentance. needs to be turned from. And if you'd honestly say, you know what, Pastor, too often that's me. I want to pray that you'd see that and you'd change. Let's talk to God. Father, I thank you so much for a very familiar story, a very familiar parable. um, One that connects to, to real life for every single one of us. We all know people. If we are not in that position right now, we all know people who just have chosen a life of sin and and aren't interested in spiritual things or God or any of that. uh, Sort of turn their back on it all. We all know people like that. And Lord, we need to reach them. I pray we would, like we talked about last Sunday, have the concern for people that Jesus had concern for. Those that um, fit into that obviously unrighteous category. Uh, help us to be lights. Individuals that draw those people to have a desire to see and tr- trust in Jesus. But Lord, I, I also realize that the second part, maybe the biggest part of this parable, is for people that sometimes are like me. Uh, we so quickly become professional about our Christianity. We so easily let our mentality slip into, I can't believe people are like that. And that arrogance, that self righteousness, is as much sin as the vices of those that walk away from you. Both of them are things we need to turn from. And my prayer is today, we'll identify that. We'll be willing to own that. And we'll choose. We'll choose to turn.